As we continue, uh, we light the four candles, uh, love, peace, joy, and hope. Uh, this morning, we start with love. And, and rather than talking about all the things that love isn't, because we tend to have an idea of that, turn the radio on, turn the TV on, it'll be real quick and you'll understand. Um, I want to just focus on, on what love is and, and what is our inspiration? Where does that come from? What do we draw on? What is love? How do we see it uh, in God's word? And, and I want to pause for a minute, even before we do that, and just ask you, has there been a moment that you've had with the Lord that nobody can take with you that's been personal between you and him where he looked into your situation, looked into your circumstances, knew your heart, and intervened in them in some way, and that the sense that you had was just a deep and abiding reality, not of what you've read about God's love, but of a true sense, a deep feeling of His love for you. Have you had that moment? That anchoring moment. Is it regular? Is it daily? Is it is it weekly for you? My favorite are the sort of the subtlety, the subtle ones uh, throughout the day when you're not expecting them, when you're not making big decisions that he just kind of sprinkles through your day. Uh, but one one gracious intervention of the Lord um, that I recall, and I've shared a little bit in the past with it uh, when I we candidated here and came and and preached and interviewed and then left. I have told you that. I, the moment we got out of here, I just was physically sick to my stomach, and it was this sense of, wow, this might happen, and we're going to have to say goodbye to some people that we really care about. It's this sense of loss. Uh, part of it was confusion. There was a lot of unknowns, a lot of decisions that had to be made, a lot of uncertainty, and so there was this profound sense of powerlessness and uncertainty. Some of you can relate to that. There's a fear, right? A sense of newness, a sense of unknown, all of these things combining and it turned into physical sickness. And so I remember going out for a run and trying to clear my head and think, what is going on here? And I shared with you that Nicole had said somewhere about this spot, if this is what it's going to be like, just let's get out of here. Let's do something different because I don't want this. Um, and there was a song on my playlist, some of you have heard it, by Hilary Scott, it's called Thy Will, and essentially that song is just her interacting with the father after a miscarriage, trying to make sense of life, and the words that she got from the Lord, thy will be done, thy will be done, thy will be done. The Lord to her, do you believe that? Do you trust me for that? Do you believe that I love you? Do you believe that I'm good? Do you believe all these big things about me? I will be done in the midst of confusion, frustration, pain, loss, all those things. Uh, and so I, I remember coming back uh, just from that run with those, those lyrics, that phrase stuck in, in my head and, and told Nicole about it. And, uh, and there was just this lifting of the physical aspects of the anxiety. And, and so we still had a lot of hard conversations to have. We still had uh, a bunch of unknown, plenty of fear in that. We still had a lot of hard goodbyes to say. So it wasn't like things just got better, but it was this deep sense that the Lord loves me. The Lord loves my family. He cares about us. He's involved. And so we can go forward with that. That is enough that we can go forward with that. It's freeing to not feel like you have to have the answers for yourself and even for your family because you know God loves you. It's freeing to not feel like you have to fix whatever might be broken or fix whatever might be unclear or make sense of what might be senseless because you know that God loves you. It's freeing. It's liberating. There's this weight that is lifted. Have you had a moment 
with the Lord where, where your weights were lifted with a deep and abiding sense that He loves you. Not just what you have done or, or might do or what may be in your future, but loves you for who you are. The prophet Jeremiah in the book of Lamentations says the, the love of the Lord, the Lord's love, the steadfast love of the Lord, he said, never ceases, right? It's better than any set of circumstances. It's better than any good news uh, at the doctor's office. It's better than anything good that might happen in the stock market or at work. It's better than any of those things because those things are circumstantial. They're fleeting and they fail and they change. And as Jeremiah says, the steadfast love of the Lord, he says it never ceases. Now, many of you know that the Bible has huge things to say about love. Lots and lots and lots to say about love. So just, just a couple of those verses. First John 4, 8 says, Anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? For God is love. So we could spend all morning just, what is, what is the weight of that whereby the Word of God tells me if love is not pervasive in my life, if it is not something that is defining my DNA, that I don't know God. So I know a lot about God, but if love isn't present, I don't know God. John 13, 35 is another one of those verses. It says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So as Jesus is talking to his followers. He's saying, the defining mark for the outside world to know that you are followers of Christ, to be able to see the love of the Father, to see who God is, and to be drawn in is by the love that God's people have for each other. Not that we all agree, because that's not going to happen. Not that all of our personalities just fit perfectly, because that's not going to happen. But that we love each other in the midst of, despite all of that. How about 1 Corinthians 13? One of my favorite passages where Paul says, if I had all of this power, if I could speak with the eloquence, with the power of angels, if I could do miracles, if I had divine wisdom, divine understanding, if I had all of these gifts, if the Lord just opened up the bag of all spiritual gifts and just poured them out on me, but I did not have love, verse 2 says, but have not love, I am nothing. My efforts misguided, my deeds useless. My gifts wasted. So with such strong language about love, where do we go for an example? We could spend a lot of time talking about bad examples. Why don't we just look at a good example this morning? Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John. I want to read 1 John 4, 9, and then we're going to read from Matthew 1. 1 John 4, 9 says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. So we see an act of the father sending the son for a purpose so that we might live through him. We see a, a choice, a deliberate step, a deliberate act, a movement of the father to send the son and a purpose and an outcome so that we might live through him. So in some way, shape, or form, we're supposed to get love. We're supposed to understand it. We're supposed to see it. We're supposed to see something to imitate through the Father sending the Son, the Son's life, death, and resurrection for the purpose that we might have life in His pathway and in His 
purpose. Let's look at the pathway just a little bit. This act of the Father sending the Son. Matthew 1, uh, let's read from starting in verse 18. This records some of the birth narrative of Jesus. And and just as I'm reading, uh, give thought to what you know about Jesus' birth. Give thought to what you know about his life, the servant, the humble posture that he takes. Starting in verse 18, Matthew chapter 1. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 24 says, when he awoke, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What do you think it's like for the Father, God the Father, to send God the Son, all of his dignity, all of his kingliness, all of his divinity, all of his worthiness, and to send him as a humble, needy, helpless, vulnerable child to be parented by Mary and Joseph, to be parented by commoners, to be celebrated by shepherds, to be on the run the first couple of years of his life from King Herod. We see that everything about Jesus' birth was beneath his dignity. Everything about his birth and his life was beneath his worthiness, beneath his glory. Uh, Philippians 2 adds to some of our thinking on what it meant for Jesus to come to earth. Philippians 2, uh, 8 and 9 say that, or 7, 8 and 9 say this, but he, Jesus, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even Death on a cross. John Kaplan says of this emptying, uh, he says, Christ indeed could not renounce his divinity. In other words, he was still fully man and still fully God while on earth. But he kept it concealed for a time that under the weakness of flesh, it, his divinity, his divine nature being fully God, might not be seen. That it, under the weakness of the flesh, it might not be seen. Now, How do we think about this and and why does it matter for love? This act of the Father sending the eternally existing second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to earth. We see everything about Jesus' posture, being humble in nature, being submissive to the Father in the concealing, in the veiling of His glory here on earth for a time. I don't know how... I don't know how to put this into our words because he's so far above us and so uh, to bring it into our level is beyond us. But one of the things, the comparisons we've used in the past is the show Undercover Boss, right? 
And so you have the CEO of a company, maybe it's Domino's, the CEO of Domino's uh, puts a wig on and changes his or her hair color and makeup and then goes into the local level, local store and gets hired to make pizzas or some entry-level job at one of the company's restaurants. And so he does all the worst jobs. Uh, he's making the pizza, making a mess, deals with unhappy customers, gets yelled at, chewed out by unhappy customers, does all the worst jobs, but at the end of the show, right, his position, his identity is revealed, is made clear, and what does he do? He promotes worthy employees and he fixes things that are broken in the company. And so we see at the end of Jesus' life the unveiling of who he is, and he doesn't just promote worthy employees, he's going to promote men and women who call on his name to be sons and daughters of the king. He doesn't just fix broken business systems, right? He's going to fix what is broken about humanity. He's going to fix the division that we have between us and God because of our sin. Some of you are familiar with the verse Romans 6.23. And we understand that the wages of sin is death. That what we deserve is to be separated from him in this life, right? Doomed to shame, doomed to guilt, doomed to despair, and nothing to do to fix that. And so that we see in Jesus that he comes and he does what we couldn't do for ourselves. He makes a payment that we couldn't pay to satisfy the wrath of God. Now, if we look at this act of the Father sending the Son, and we see that the Father gives everything, holds nothing back in sending Jesus, and that's part of his love. If we see Jesus as a willing participant in the Father's plan, even unto death, humbly, sacrificially, that's part of love. I think it's fair to ask the question of us, what am I not willing to give up to love well? What am I not willing to give up to love well? Am I willing to give up control? Am I willing to give up what I think is fair, what I think is just, what I think is right, how I want to be treated, to have my rights trampled on to be able to love well. Often we find that we are generous givers in some way, shape, or form, but that there's so much more that we're holding on to. Some of us are generous uh, financially, but unwilling to give uh, just a minute of our time. Some of us are generous with our time, but unwilling to give a dollar Uh, of our money. If it cost Jesus everything, don't you think that loving others, don't you think that loving the Father is going to cost us something? It seems reasonable. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn to John 15. Jesus is now talking with his followers. He's going to talk about uh, love. He's going to explain that there's no greater love in all the world. There's no greater love imaginable than that one would give his life for his friends, and he's going to unpack a little bit what he's done for his followers. And so what we get to see is not just the love of the Father sending the Son in this act of sending, but some of what Jesus did, some of what he accomplished, how he related to his followers. And we get to see some aspects of what it means to have life in him. Uh, John 15, let's pick it up in verse 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13, he says, greater love has no one than this, than that someone would lay down his life 
for his friends. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer, verse 15, do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, verse 16, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and you should bear fruit and your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Verse 17, these things I command you, these things I command you so that you will love one another, so that you will love one another. The greatest example of love is the Father sending the Son, the Son dying for our sins, the Son laying down His life. Uh, Verse 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So what do we observe in Jesus' life that might give us a sense of what this love looks like and what we're called to imitate? There's dozens of things that we could list. One of the things that we see in Jesus is that He was obedient. He was submissive to the Father's plan. You remember in the garden, he says, not my will be done, but yours. Thy will be done. Jesus was obedient. He was submissive to the Father. The call on our lives is to love as Jesus loved, obedient as Jesus was obedient. We also see throughout his earthly ministry that he was impartial. He surrounds himself with kind of the worst of the worst. He he collects all these Uh, people that no one else wanted and said, we're going to be a team and we're going to go change the world. I'm going to change the world through you. He doesn't pick the best and the brightest, right? How many times do we read about Jesus having dinner with people and the religious leaders look at Jesus and say, if he was really God, he would know who he's with. You don't associate with these people. These are not people that you talk to. You remember when the religious leaders were going to stone the woman caught in adultery. They didn't debate whether she was guilty or not. But Jesus pressed pause and said, let he who is without guilt cast the first stone. Because Jesus loved the guilty. He was impartial. He loved those who were guilty. He loved those who knew they had no business in his presence. He loved those regardless of what they brought to the table. We also see that Jesus was in it for the long haul. How many times did his followers not get what he was trying to say. How many times did they doubt his power and they're surprised when he calms the sea? Who is this that speaks and and calms? There's over and over, they're surprised by what he says, surprised by who he is, surprised by what he does. Even when they abandon him, even when they desert him, even when they deny him, and Jesus comes back after the resurrection, doesn't he go to his followers Doesn't he go back to them and and mend those wounds? He doesn't come back and condemn them. He doesn't come back and scold them. Jesus is in it for the long haul. They're not projects. They're people he loves. And so when they fall, he comes to them and walks with them and steps with them. He's in it for the long haul. Isn't it reassuring to us that our Father loves us and that he's in it for the long haul with us? Haven't we given him reason to check out? Haven't we given him reason to move on? Isn't it reassuring that he's in it for the long haul? Isn't it reassuring that he's impartial in his love? And and so we're not here today and we don't stand in line and have all of our backgrounds measured. How much good, how much sin. The The Father's love is available to each and every one of us regardless of our pasts. 
because God's love for us is impartial, right? Man's love, love that is not from God is, is partial. It shows favorites, right? It's conditional. Look, what have you done for me lately? Uh, it's convenient. It's on my terms when it's easy for me, when it doesn't cost too much. Isn't it amazing to consider that the Father's love for us, that He's in it for the long haul, that He's impartial regardless of our past. And then that He gives us Jesus' life as a clear roadmap. All of the confusion in life, all of the confusion with relationships, all of the confusion about decisions we make, but we have a clear roadmap for how to love through the life of Jesus. Verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his sins. Then that someone lay down his life for his sins. Jesus wanted God's glory more than his comfort. Jesus wanted God's glory more than his comfort. And so his death is the substitute, right? It's a substitute for our lives. He's innocent. We're guilty. He died so that we can live. His death was a substitute, a payment, right? A just and righteous God, a just and righteous judge cannot be in the presence of unrighteousness, cannot tolerate sin, cannot condone sin, cannot pardon sin unless a punishment, unless a penalty has been paid. So there's a big fancy word, propitiation, right? For the removal of guilt, that Jesus' life was for the removal of our guilt. Jesus' death made a provision for our highest need. Jesus wanted God's glory more than His comfort. And we see that Jesus gave Himself fully to God's plan, even when it cost Him so much. Isn't it amazing to think that our Father's love for us doesn't stop at a certain point? That the Father's love for us doesn't stop when it gets difficult? Because love that is from man stops when it gets difficult, stops when the cost is too high, stops when we've been offended too many times, stop when the person has transgressed too many times. Love from God, as Jeremiah said, never ceases. Isn't it freeing to know that Jesus paid our price? Uh, faith, spirituality, walking with God is, is not like being a kindergarten student where you get gold stars for good behavior and maybe a pizza party at the end of the year, right? Isn't it nice to know that Jesus has paid the price and so we don't have to strive, we don't have to strain to do everything just perfectly and feel like when we blow it, God hates us. The price has been paid. The debt is no longer owed when by faith we follow. It's a secure position to stand in. Uh, verse 15 says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. He says, But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, all that I have, all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I love this. Jesus made known to them the things of God. Jesus made known to them the things of God. So in the totality of love, there's so many directions we can go talking about what love looks like. We're familiar with the passage of turning the other cheek. In other words, uh, let your rights get trampled on to love and endure even attack to love. We're familiar with uh, the many passages that talk about sacrificially giving, being generous, seeing a need and being responsive to that need to our neighbors. 
We live in a society that is rapidly increasing in social conscientiousness and decreasing in spiritual conscientiousness. Uh, For example, some of you are familiar with the Levi uh, denim brand. Did you know that there's a whole brand of jeans that are made from recycled plastic bottles? It's their effort to be social, socially conscientious. Some of you know that if, if you like coffee, that there's such a thing as fair trade coffee. You have to pay more for it, but what it means is that the people growing the crop, the people harvesting the crop, the people transporting the crop are operating by international standards so that each person gets a fair part of the profit and the methods for growing the business and the crop are sustainable and environmentally thoughtful. Now, it's important that farmers get a fair wage. That's a good thing. It's more important that someone makes known to them the things of the Father. As we think about our neighbors, it's important that they see love in our lives. Maybe that looks like Christmas cookies. Maybe that means you chase their dog for them when their dog gets out. Maybe you pick up their mail when they're out of town. They need to see love from neighbors. Even more, they need someone to tell them about the things of the Father. You see, the love that is from God deals with reality, deals with truth, deals with what is, doesn't hide from issues. Love that is from man says everything's okay, sweeps everything under the rug, pretends like there's not an issue. Isn't it nice to know that we have a father that doesn't run from reality, that doesn't dodge what's difficult? That as we follow the Lord, he's going to bring up things in our life that need to be addressed. That that's for our good. Verse 16 says, you did not choose me, Jesus says to his followers, but I chose you and I appointed you so that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide so that it should last so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. None of us would choose Jesus' misfit team of followers. None of us. And the Father's probably thinking, and none of you... I wouldn't have chosen any of you. Jesus chose them. They didn't have perfect SAT scores, perfect GPAs, perfect job history. Jesus chose them. Jesus knew their past. Jesus knew their present. Jesus knew their future. And he chose them anyway. How does that relate to our salvation and this right standing that we have before God? I think about my salvation, being forgiven. I'm not saved because I'm smarter than someone else. I'm not saved because I have a more thoughtful predisposition to spiritual things than someone else. I'm not saved because I was born into a Christian family or born in the West, born in the United States. I'm saved because the grace of God intervened in my life in partnership with the Holy Spirit to help me to understand that I'm not just a mess, I'm broken And that Jesus wasn't just a good man, he was a savior who provided a remedy for my brokenness, a payment for the penalty, for the punishment that I deserved, and made that attractive to me. So that I could respond by faith and trust and follow. And then he enables, through sanctification, through the Holy Spirit, enables me to actually go and live and follow that path. So there's nothing that I have to boast in. There's nothing that I have to brag in. One of the things that comes up often because my kids like Star Wars is good guys and bad guys. And when they think bad guys, they think people that wear masks that come out late at night when it's dark and steal things. And so they'll often ask about bad guys. What they don't understand is that we're all bad guys. They don't get it. They have a really hard time understanding that we're all bad guys 
before the Father. God's love flows out of who He is, not what we can do for Him. Love that is not of God demands repayment. Love that is not of God demands a return. Jesus knew their past, their present, and the future, and he chose them anyway. Do you understand that Jesus knows your past, your present, and your future and wants you to follow him anyway? It's freeing. It means we don't have to hide from him when we slip and fall. We don't have to hide and bury our head in the sand in shame when we sin and make a mistake. We can repent and continue. It's freeing to know that if you're not perfect, you're not going to get struck by lightning. It's freeing to know that He loves us, that the penalty has been paid, that He knew your past, your present, and your future, and chose us anyway. Last, from verse 17, Jesus says to His followers, He says, These things I command you so that you will love one another. These things I command you so that you will love one another. In other words, the end goal here for Jesus is not just their intellectual or cerebral comprehension. It's not just so that they can go and teach what he's taught them accurately to others. His goal for them is that they would go and live lives that represent the Father in heaven here on earth. That they would go and they would love as he has loved them. As you think about these next couple weeks, what does love look like for you? What is, who is God calling you to love? In what ways is he calling you to love with more long-suffering than, than you care uh, to carry out? In what ways is he calling you to love who Jesus loved, how Jesus loved, for as long as Jesus loved? One of the things as I've sat with John 15 this week is just the clear sense that there's so much of my selfishness wrapped in to efforts to love. So much that is self-serving, wrapped up, intertwined with efforts to make Christ known by being faithful and obedient. Uh, one of the ways I see this, and, and you guys can just know that, that I fail at this and I will know that you don't, um, but one of them is uh, loving or doing kind things out of social obligation. I want to think of myself as a good person. No one wants to think of themselves not. No one wants to think of themselves as uh, being on Santa's naughty list. And so out of guilt, I'll do what seems good. Out of guilt or compulsion, uh, be kind, refrain from saying something or, or uh, speak positively of someone. Out of social obligation, it's self-serving. It's to protect a fragile ego. It's to protect this sense of self-righteousness that I seem to want to preserve. It's not loving, it's frail. It, it falls apart because the moment it's not reciprocated, the foundation is gone because I'm not getting what I really want. And so my love just is, is frail and weak and fragile in that regard. And that doesn't serve me well. It doesn't glorify the Lord. It doesn't serve my marriage well. It doesn't serve my kids well. It doesn't serve relationships well. God wants more for me at times than I want for myself. Not just social obligation. Sometimes it's religious obligation. You might feel this this afternoon if you go to lunch and the waiter or the waitress looks at you and says, oh, you're dressed nice. Did you guys just come from church? And you say yes. And then she hands you the bill. And you think, well, 
I'm going to have to tip a whole lot more than what I was planning to. It's because I'm a religious person. This is what religious people do. We go to church at these times. We say these things. We do these things. Loving people out of religious obligation more or less amounts to coercion to get God's favor, to get Him to do something that we want. It just reveals in our hearts that there's an idol that exists that supersedes our love for the Lord. Uh, Another one that I identified this week is I might do things for people in hopes of reciprocity. I might do things in hopes that people will reciprocate. Again, that's not love, that's coercion, that's manipulation. It's sad, right? It's pathetic. So what do we do when we see our sin intertwined with our love and we understand these huge things that the Bible says about love, that our lives are these living, breathing examples of a loving God and yet we see Him so stained by sin. Remember, we've got a God who knows our past, our present, and our future. We can run to Him, not from Him. We don't have to hide from Him. We can open it up to Him. We don't have to be buried in guilt and shame. The penalty has been paid. The punishment has been paid to set us free so that we have life in Him. You know, one of the things that we do miss about California is is playing in the ocean. The water is actually swimmable, like you can get it and not freeze. Um, There's sand. It's not just rocks and cliffs. The rocks and cliffs are pretty, but not great for swimming and playing. Um, but one of the things that happens often, is, especially uh, with little kids, is you turn around, you turn your back to the wave, and a big one comes that you don't anticipate, and it knocks you over, and you do some somersaults, and you swallow, you drink, you inhale a whole bunch of salt, and it tastes terrible, you're discombobulated for a minute, you're disoriented for a minute, and then you come out of it, the wave goes back, and you realize you're standing in about eight inches of water. <laughs> so you look around and make sure nobody saw you fall and look dumb. Uh, Some of us are spiritually discombobulated, aren't we? Some of us are spiritually disoriented. We need to come up for air and realize that the Father does move and then when He's standing next to us, the waves that seem really big to me are really small to Him and we're really just standing in about eight inches of water. Some of us are more than spiritually discombobulated. We're, We're spiritually lost. We've never had a moment with the Lord where we've ever felt his love in a meaningful way. We've never made that decision to, by faith, say, yes, Jesus, I accept this sacrifice that you've made on my behalf. I want to follow the Lord. I want to take that free gift. I want to be made new, be made a new person, a new creation. And I want to walk in that freedom, relishing the love of God that was poured out for me, that the Father sends the Son, and the Son's sacrifice on the cross. I want that freedom. If that's you this morning, what does it look to get reoriented? What does it look like to take a step towards Him? If that's something that's on your heart, I'd encourage you to even just write, I need to take a step with the Lord on the little communication card that's underneath your seat or in the seat bag. We'd love to be a part of that with you. You've got to remember that you have a Father whose arms are open wide. Some of you have sons and daughters that won't be with you for Christmas. And that hurts. And you wish that they could see your arms like this, open wide, wishing that they were with you for Christmas. Wishing that whatever has kept you separate was not there. That they would come and understand that that you love them. 
that you care about them, that in spite of past indiscretions, your arms are open wide. We've got to see that that is the posture of our Father towards us. Penalty has been paid. Let's take a step together. If we can be a part of that in some way in your life, we would love to do that. Uh, Let me finish with Lamentations, the rest of the words of Jeremiah Chapter 3, he says this. He says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. Not when it's difficult. Not when we've given Him cause to cease. He says, His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. When you experience the love of God, You don't say, look at me. You don't say, look what I've done. You say, great is your faithfulness. And then he says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. When you have the love of the Lord, you can say, the Lord is my portion, and I will hope in him. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord, that You want more for us than we want for ourselves. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for trying to justify our lives, justify our sin, uh, minimize where we're at or what we've done. Lord, when Your arms are open wide to us. Lord, You know our past, present, and future, and You love us anyway. Lord, You know that we don't have perfect GPAs and SAT scores, but You love us anyway. Lord, you know how little we bring to the table and you love us anyway. Lord, your love comes from who you are. It's not based on the worthiness or the unworthiness of the recipient. Lord, we thank you that that gives us a strong position for life. It gives us a strong position in the midst of fear. A strong position in the midst of guilt and despair and shame. Lord, your word says, perfect love casts out fear. Make us fearless, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.